Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Hi, my name is Pat Iyer, and welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, the Legal Nurse Consulting Podcast known the world over. We have listeners now in 105 countries and are so excited to be able to share with you tips and tricks for helping you with your legal nurse consulting skills. Today, Janelle Lee is joining me. She has over 30 years of clinical experience ranging from ER to ICU to emergency medical services experience. She managed an ambulance company. She was the one at the other end of the phone getting those calls, making sure that it was appropriately staffed. And she is a legal nurse consultant who focuses on helping attorneys with medical malpractice and personal injury cases. She is in Tennessee, and she's also the mother of a daughter who has type 1 diabetes. So she has seen the issues that we're going to talk about in this podcast up front and personal. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world who have diabetes, and it's an issue that can creep into any kind of a case involving medical injuries and medical conditions. Let's start, Janelle, by welcoming you to the podcast. Hi, thank you, Pat. Thank you for inviting me. I just mentioned a few seconds ago that diabetes affects hundreds of millions of people worldwide. Can you give us maybe more precise numbers than that? That's a pretty broad number that I just threw out. Yes, I can. I did a little bit of research. Um, the CDC reports that within the United States, that there are 30, 37 million persons with diabetes, and it's rising every year. That's 11% of our population. We know that it is global, that it is in every country, but we don't have global numbers to support that. Also, there's a cost associated with that. The United States spends over $240 billion a year annually for diabetic care. Um, this translates to the individual per person about 10,000 a year for those who have diabetes. That's their not covered out-of-pocket costs for care. Mm -hmm. That certainly adds up, Janelle. Now, one other thing to note is when I was researching this, I thought, I wonder how many are type one versus type two. And it's interesting that some of the statistics I came up with for persons under the age of 30, there are 21.7 per 100,000 of our diabetic population are type one. All right. Yes. And this is a good time to review the differences between type one and type two for our listener. Okay. Yes. There's two primary uh, types of diabetes, one and two. There's also 
two others that I'll just briefly talk about. But type one diabetics is an autoimmune disease. It's when the pancreas stops secreting insulin. Um, when we say autoimmune, autoimmune uh, the layperson's term is your body is eating itself. So essentially, there's no way to treat it. There's no organ transplant that will work at this point. Um, they simply need to use insulin because their body doesn't have insulin. Uh, type two diabetics, we tend to think of it as lifestyle. And those persons, their body stops recognizing insulin. It still secretes it. Their pancreas secretes it, but their body stops recognizing it. And so we tend to treat them with an oral medication. Now there's two other types that I'll briefly say something about here. There is now a type one and a half, which is kind of an unusual uh, thing that we've discovered in the last few years of medicine. This is when a person is a type two diabetic, but their body stops recognizing insulin and then they slide into an autoimmune type phase. About 10% of type two diabetics are actually called latent autoimmune disease, LADA. And so we call them one and a half. So we actually have to give them both oral and insulin medications. And then the fourth type is gestational. And moms who go into diabetes during pregnancy, 5.7% of those will end up with type one diabetes after they deliver. And 50% of those will end up with type two diabetes over the next 10 years. So it's kind of shocking statistics. It is. When I was finishing my graduate program in 1979, I did some work with developing a curriculum for gestational diabetics and realized um, some of the risks from the obstetrical standpoint that they could, if they didn't control blood sugar well during pregnancy, could end up producing enormous babies That's correct. that were then very difficult to deliver vaginally and had to be delivered by C-section. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. The, all kinds of implications for our health and what you're describing. Right. We talked about new technology and also before I leave my graduate school program, you would be interested, Janelle, in in the description of the first insulin pump, which I saw when I was working with a doctor by the name of Theodore Duncan, who worked in Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia. I was assigned to his office because I was doing my clinical work. And he had a machine that was about the size of a washing machine. <laughs> and it had tubing on one side, on the left side, and tubing on the right side. And the way that this thing worked was that it was hooked up to the patient's left arm and the other tubing is hooked up to her right arm and it measured her blood sugar and infused insulin based on what it found. It was totally impractical. There was no way you could walk around by dragging this thing with you. It was the forerunner of what we have now. And for our listener who has not seen or experienced an insulin pump. Could you describe the technology now that is this like maybe 10th, the 12th, 100th generation from what I'm describing? I wish I had one I could hold up to the camera, but insulin pumps nowadays are about this big around. They 
Some of them are even smaller, little, little tiny ones, but usually an insulin pump with tubing is attached to the belt, carried around kind of like a pager. And um, it secretes a very low dose. We call it a basal rate of insulin because your pancreas is always working, even when you're sleeping, secreting micro amounts of insulin. So we have a basal rate going through the pump. And then according to what you're going to eat, those carbs, you have to cover with insulin. You need to ingest, you need to, to take on insulin for everything you ingest. So the doctor will give you a ratio. You count out how many carbs approximately you're eating. And if you're eating a meal of 60 carbs and your ratio is one unit to 15 carbs, you'll program into your pump very easily four more units of insulin. And it will go in rapidly, starts working right now. So hopefully it will be taking effect by the time you're finished eating your meal. Now, in combination with a pump, we have a thing called a CGM. It stands for continuous glucose monitoring. And that is a little disc that is stuck onto the body underneath the skin. It's just a little tiny tube that goes on their skin, just like the pump. Um, both are, are stuck on, they're about so big around, but stuck in different, different spots where the CGM monitors your serum glucose. And the great thing about it is it, it allows our patients to have much tighter control on their blood sugars because it will communicate to their pump. It communicates to their phone. There's an app on their phone. They will get an alert if they're going very high or very low, or if they're going rapidly high or rapidly low, and they can then either eat something or give themselves a little bolus of insulin to counteract that high. And it is the way to go. And the technology nowadays are not everyone has it, but some pumps can communicate like what you're talking about with your washing machine story. Some pumps can actually communicate and calculate out how much insulin the person needs based on what their glucose level is with the CGM. And then that gives the insulin accordingly. Most people though, most diabetics that I have worked with, they don't want to give up that control completely. They want to be able to look at their pump, program it, monitor it. They're very much involved with it. Unfortunately, insurance doesn't always pay for these great modern technology items. So that's another challenge that our diabetics specifically, when we're talking about challenges, the population of diabetics who at the age of 26 age out from mom and dad's insurance, health insurance plan, and they don't have full-time work or insurance on their own or through a spouse yet. And so those are the ones that we worry the most about. Yes. You know, there are certainly disadvantages to turning 26 in the United States. <laughs> We talked about the technology, the issues that we encounter in managing diabetes, despite the technology, uh, you know, there's a long list that we know as nurses and nurse educators have to be tackled, availability of medications, understanding of lifestyle changes, sick day rules. I remember it's 
probably in the early 1980s, 1970s, that my neighbor across the street had flu and took her insulin and didn't eat appropriately and ended up going into low blood sugar coma and died. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was such a shocking event in my life as a nurse. I was aware of it, but to somebody who I knew who I'd been talking to was now suddenly overnight dead because of not being able to handle this well. You know, there's that whole aspect of managing diabetes and particularly for insulin dependent type one diabetics who are on much more of a fragile footing. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Hey, I'm Pat Iyer, and I am so pleased to bring you Sherry Martin, who is a social media expert, who will be one of our speakers at our LNC Success online conference, taking place October 26, 27, and 28 in 2023. This is a program designed to take you through the process of building your business and adding more services or stabilizing your business, no matter where you are in your business development. This is the conference specifically for legal nurse consultants that you want to attend. Sherry is well known to me as an expert in LinkedIn, and I've asked her to come and speak at the conference to share some tips for you that will help you with your LinkedIn presence and profile. Sherry, I'm so delighted that you will be at the conference, and I would love it if you would tell our viewer, what are some of the things that you'll be covering in the conference that will help them with their LinkedIn presence? Oh, I'll be more than happy to, Pat, and I thank you so much for the invitation to come share with your amazing group. Um, love your conferences. And I want to start off by asking a question first so that they can really get thinking. Are you a legal nurse consultant looking to take your business to the next level? Because if so, that's what I want to talk to you about today. It's a, about a powerful tool that really can help you achieve just that for you. And that is LinkedIn. Again, as Pat says, I'm Sherry Martin, and I'm here to guide you through the benefits of using LinkedIn for networking, brand building, and business development. And with over 25 years of online marketing experience and since 2008, I've actually been helping countless uh, professionals unlock the potential of this incredible platform. I really love LinkedIn and I really feel that you should too. And when it comes to LinkedIn, your profile is what I call your virtual business card. It's your chance to really make a strong first impression and showcase your expertise. And by optimizing your profile, you know, with practical tips and best practices, you can actually attract potential clients that are looking for you and build that credibility within your industry. But first, we really need to make sure that your profile stands out with the following essential elements. One, a professional headshot two, a compelling headline, and three, a well-crafted about section 
that again, highlights your unique value proposition and will work together to craft a profile that reflects your professionalism and your expertise. But you know, it doesn't stop there. LinkedIn is all about networking by connecting with industry peers, potential clients and thought leaders you can expand your professional circle and actually tap into, oh my gosh, so many new opportunities. I'll teach you the art of building relationships on LinkedIn and how to actually leverage them for your business success. And as a LinkedIn coach, trainer, and social media strategist, I have seen the incredible results from that actually come from a well-executed LinkedIn strategy. It's uh, all about mastering the different social platforms, understanding your target audience, and crafting engaging content that will resonate with your audience. Whether you are a solopreneur or a small business professional, LinkedIn can simplify your social media marketing efforts. So let me be your guide to navigating this powerful platform so that you can focus on what you do best. And that's providing top-notch legal nurse consulting services. So are you ready to unlock the full potential of LinkedIn? I'll see you at the conference and we'll connect and take your business to new heights. Again, I'm Sherry Martin, the So Social Visionary and I can't wait to see you succeed on LinkedIn. And I can't wait for you to be presenting your content and getting people excited and giving them practical tips on what they can do with their profile. That's all taking place October 26, 27, and 28, 2023. The link for signing up for the conference is right below. I recommend you go to the link today. Check out the wonderful opportunities for knowledge, support, and networking that we provide. If you're seeing this video after the conference, the recordings will be available. We would love to have you live at the conference, getting the benefit of participating in the activities and having an opportunity to ask Sherry, as well as our panel of many other qualified speakers, your questions to get your questions answered, you need to be there live. See you then. Now let's return to the show. Now, there are multiple things that we are concerned about when we monitor these patients. Um, I did a little bit of research on it. Misdiagnosis is one of the key issues. Um, also not giving the correct uh, dosage. And then um, we have, like, I'm gonna give out my, my papers here. So mismanagement. And I'll, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the three, but misdiagnosis generally happens by the primary care physician. Um, more often than not, a patient is diagnosed as type two diabetic instead of type one. That means then they won't get the insulin that is necessary for life for them. And it's associated with a high amount of diabetic ketoacidosis, DKA. And that is when the body becomes very acidic 
as a result of not having insulin that pushes the sugar from the bloodstream, the glucose sugar, we use them interchangeably, pushes the glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells so that it can feed the patient's cells. This is why your children many times when they're diagnosed are very, very skinny because they've not been fed. They don't have insulin necessary to push the sugar into the cells and their body starts eating its own muscle. So when they are initially diagnosed incorrectly and they need that insulin, they can very quickly go into DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, and it's associated with about 30% of new onset diabetics go into DKA. Um, one study, it was a survey that was done online, 25% uh, of the respondents stated that they were misdiagnosed. And within that survey group, 18% of them had an increase in DKA as a result of misdiagnosis. Um, it's very critical going into DK is very critical because it can result in death and it also causes a long hospitalization, um, to diagnose diabetes. It's a very simple blood sugar check. The physician many times can do it in his office. And that tells us whether the pancreas is secreting enough insulin. But to farther diagnose between type one and type two, they need to do a lab test that is an antibody test for the pancreas. And that tells you the autoimmune component of the body eating the pancreas cells. Um, so the misdiagnosis is one of the key issues that we deal with. Medication errors is another one. And the medication error that you see in nursing practice can be multiple things. One of the things can be that the blood sugars are not checked. If a patient requires blood sugar checks and they're not checked, how do they know whether they need insulin or not? Number two, they might give the incorrect dose of insulin. Most hospitals these days require a double nurse check on insulin because it's so easy to draw up too much or too little. And those tiny, tiny little syringes with these tiny microscopic lines. Um, and then the other thing is, not giving insulin. There's a blood sugar check that the tech checked the patient's blood sugar. It's 560. They need to have 15 units of insulin for that. And the nurse doesn't know about it and doesn't give it. So those are issues. The um, medication errors are definitely a, an issue on nursing. Um, and then the third thing that we encounter a fair amount in the hospital um, is mismanagement. Um, when a patient comes into the hospital, the standard order that the physician writes is to check blood sugars, AC and HS. AC is before each meal and HS is before bedtime. So we check the blood sugar. Then we have a sliding scale according to how high their blood sugar is to give them insulin. Well, that's great for a type two, but if it's a type one and the doctor is not thinking about that type one, and he orders this, we check their blood sugar, we cover for this high and we feed them and they just stay high until the next meal. And we check their blood sugar, we cover again for the high and we feed them 
And it's just this vicious cycle. So we have basically maintained their blood sugar super high, their whole hospitalization. It goes on for two or three days. And then somebody says, oh, wait, wait a minute. We need to give them a long acting and we need to start giving them insulin for their carbs, et cetera. So that's one thing to definitely look at as well. Um, why is this important? High blood sugar is associated with heart attacks, risk of strokes, with poor wound healing, uh, lengthened stay in the hospital, um, poor nutritional status. If we're keeping their blood sugars at three to 500 while they're in the hospital and we're expecting them to heal and get well, it's going to delay that. Um, also the patients feel miserable. They usually have headaches. They'll have blurry vision. And in some cases they have these, uh, emotional feelings. They almost appear like they have a psychological issue going on when blood sugars are not maintained and controlled. That's especially common in our under 30 age group. There was, I want to tell you a story quick of a patient that we, that I know of. Um, I, we personally know the, the family. It was very, very sad. He was a young man who was 22 years old. He had just graduated college, was living with roommates came home and they were cooking. There was a few beers there. He picked up a beer. He drank about half a beer and went into his bedroom. Everyone assumed, oh, he just went into his bedroom. You know, maybe he was going to go to the restroom or change his clothes or give his insulin or whatever. His roommates didn't think anything about it. 45 minutes later though, he had not returned. So they went to check on him and he was down on the floor. So they called, they couldn't wake him. They called the ambulance company. The ambulance company came, they started CPR. They transported him to the ER and this young man died. Um, from the family, I found out that they never did a blood sugar check. That is standard pre-hospital care. Always, always check a blood sugar. They didn't check his blood sugar until we got to the ER. Had they checked his blood sugar and treated him, he might've survived. We don't know. Um, that's very, very sad. And if you have a moment, I'll tell you one other story that I feel because I have a passion for the underserved. And um, not too long ago, I had a patient that came into the hospital and she was type one diabetic. She was of a African-American race. She was, which is more rare. That's the reason I'm bringing that up is it's more rare. Usually diabetes is a Caucasian type one diabetics are usually Caucasian Northern European um, more commonly. So she came into the hospital and eventually it came out that she was staying with an abusive man in a relationship, terrified of him, but she had no choice to stay because she had no health insurance and he had the health insurance and she knew she would die if she left because she needed her insulin. So it was a vicious cycle and it was just a, allowed the abuse to be perpetuated. So uh, ultimately we ended up giving her my daughter's insulin for three months until she could get insurance. That's um, a wrinkle to a reason why a woman stays in an abusive relationship that had never occurred to me, Janelle. Horrible, horrible. And, and she didn't tell us at first. And yeah, so that was very, very sad. Um, there's another thread full of stories because I kind of, uh, keep track of my diabetic stories. There was another time where a young female who was, I think 23 ish years old 
um, was held against her will in the hospital in the psych unit because her parents thought she was using her high and low blood sugars to hurt herself. They suggested that. So the doctors put a certificate of need on her and held her for nine days in the hospital, treating her for psych problems, but not understanding how to treat a type one diabetic versus a type two. And again, we were doing that blood sugar check, AC and HS, treating her for the high, feeding her, keeping her blood sugars five and 600. And of course it makes a person very, very thirsty and very, very hungry constantly when their blood sugars are that high. And so they started withholding food. The nurses started withholding food because they didn't know what to do for the high blood sugars. And um, there was a complete mismanagement on that mm -hmm. case. You brought up some stories and some dimensions to diabetes care that are important for us to think about as legal nurse consultants. I remember in the era of handwritten orders and many of our listeners in other parts of the world may be managing medical records in a handwritten form where it was common to write 10 U and to have the 10 U be interpreted as a hundred U because of the way that the U was formed. Yes. The Joint Commission started requiring us, I guess it was in the 1980s maybe, to spell out the word units, mm -hmm. but that required changing behavior, which is slow process. So there were a number of overdoses of insulin with mm -hmm. 100 units being administered inaccurately to mm -hmm. a patient. Right. And I also think in terms of legal nurse consulting about people who undergo surgery or have trauma who are diabetics who are not normally insulin dependent, but their blood sugar spikes out of control. Uh, my husband had colitis last year and was taking a dose of prednisone to calm down his system. And the prednisone caused his blood sugar to go up into the 400s and 500s. So yeah. he had previously not been a type one diabetic, became type one for that temporary period and had to learn how to administer insulin, which initially he said, well, Pat, you're a nurse, you could give it to me. <laughs> and that worked for a while. And then his nurse practitioner said, uh-uh, if something happens to your wife, you need to know how to give yourself insulin. It's time that you learned. So he learned after that. Mm -hmm. But we we see this also in, in personal injury cases of from the standard of care perspective, are the people managing the diabetic patient in the hospital attuned to the fact that this critical hospitalization or this acute hospitalization is going to throw off diabetic control, throw off the blood sugars, and require a different management? Mm -hmm. And that Specific recognizing that could be a deviation from the standard of care. It is. And specifically any type of infection along with a steroid will cause blood sugars to rise. Mm -hmm. As we're looking at medical records, are there key documents that we should be considering when evaluating a case with diabetes and a question of mismanagement? Yes, there are. Um, 
depending on where the situation took place, you of course would want all the hospital records. But let's say that it's a type one, like the story of the young man. It's important to get all the EMS records, look at the county and the state protocols, um, see if they identified in the field and followed the protocol. In his case, they never did a glucose check. Also, go back to his family practitioner, his uh, PMD. Um, was there a diagnosis of type one or type two? Was there a misdiagnosis? Is there lab orders? Are there prescriptions ordered? And get records from his primary care doctor. Um, doctor visit notes, if an A1C has been ordered uh, to see if he is maintaining control, he or she maintaining a continual control of their blood sugars over a time period because the A1C goes back two to three months. And um, then also see if there's an endocrinologist versus a primary care doctor. In our region, we don't have endocrinologists, but in larger cities, we have endocrinologists. And so people could be followed by both, but primary care around here is who manages the type one versus type two. Um, and of course, they're not always the expert in that. Um, and I believe that all the hospital records, when you're looking and digging into them, each time a lab draw is drawn, there's going to be a glucose reported. Are they doing anything about that? Is it trending upward and there's no recognition of it? Those type of things. And you bring up a, a good point, Janelle, regarding the availability of the specialists. W during the COVID era, there was a loosening of the requirements of a physician needing to be licensed in the state where the patient resided. However, with the change in the regulations in the United States, it then became more difficult for a physician to treat a patient in a different state. So that endocrinologist would then require to have a license in the state where the patient resided if it was not in the same state where the physician was practicing. And that restriction limits the availability of telehealth, which um, for us, because we live in New Jersey and Florida and our doctors are at Johns Hopkins in Maryland, we don't live in Maryland. And we were negotiating all of these regulations and continue to negotiate it to make sure that we can see the specialists that we want to when we want to see them, regardless of where we live. That may seem like a simple request. I want to see the doctor who has been taking care of me, but oh, gosh, he's not licensed in my state anymore or never was licensed. Mm -hmm. So we, that this is a separate podcast if we talk about the flaws in our healthcare system, but they stand in the way for many patients who are looking to get quality care and we want to deliver quality care and we know we should be delivering quality of care, but we can't because of the barriers that exist within our healthcare system. And that yes. leads to some really bad outcomes. It is very challenging for those patient populations that I keep referring to of the underserved for them to negotiate that. You throw into it 
English as a second language or a person that doesn't hear or a young person that's just fled a fledgling that's just launched from the parent's nest and doesn't know how to gain access to healthcare and records and the right physician, or they've moved to another state. You throw that in there along with our healthcare system. That's very challenging. You make me think of um, a man in my church whose son was a freshman in Stanford and his parents were living in Pennsylvania. And this young man had irritable bowel syndrome and Crohn's disease, and he had a flare-up. And he called his father and said, what do I do? And his father said, we'll go to the emergency department. So he was talking to his dad on his cell phone as he walked in. Well, I'm at the emergency department. What do I do next? Well, do you see a desk in front of you? Do you see a person behind the desk? It was just torture for his father, who was telling me the story of trying to walk his son through, how do you get medical care when all your doctors are across the country and you're 18 years old and you have to navigate this by yourself as a young adult? He ultimately got the care and and his situation got handled. But it was that conversation that made me realize there are so many steps required to successfully navigate the healthcare system. And you just pointed out the the underserved and all the factors that can make it difficult for them. You have to be on your game. You have to speak the language of your providers. You have to know what questions to ask. You have to have enough money to carry out the treatment plan that's been given to you or know where to get alternative medications. Like we could talk for the next 20 minutes about things that make it difficult to get medical care. Yeah. And uh, it's such a challenge. And then you throw COVID in there and you send the patient in who is elderly by themselves because no one's allowed to go with them to speak for them. And they're confused and hard of hearing with a little bit of early onset dementia, and they just don't understand their own health care. Yeah. Well, let's end on a positive note, Janelle. Yeah. <laughs> How can our listener find out more about you and, and the services that you offer? All right. You can contact me by cell phone at 760-522-6222. Lots of twos, or my website at sealconsulting.com. And seal is S E A L consulting.com. You can also email me at Janelle Lee, altogether, J E N E L L E, and my last name, L E A, at sealconsulting.com. And for clarification, what area code? You mentioned what time zone are you in? I'm in Eastern. All right. I mentioned earlier, Janelle lives in Tennessee, Eastern time zone. Don't call her up at three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) She will not be awake and she will not appreciate it. (laughs) I'll keep my ringer off. (laughs) (laughs) But you can leave her her a voicemail message. (laughs) If you are looking for support for your legal nurse consulting case, if you're an attorney looking for an expert to help you guide through some of the medical issues in your case, contact Janelle 
she'd be happy to help you. And especially if you have a case involving EMS, she's got strong background in that area or diabetes care. She's your girl. Thank you. Thanks so much, Janelle, for participating in this conversation with me. And thank you to you who's been watching this on our YouTube channel at Legal Nurse Business or listening to it on the audio channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others. We bring out new shows each week. We're delighted to bring you people with expertise in various aspects of medicine or business. And you can, if you haven't already downloaded our Expert Edu app, you can watch our podcasts on your cell phone, on our app, or listen to them on our app by getting Expert Edu, E-D-U, Expert Edu, at the Apple App Store or at Google Play for Android phones. We update the app every week with podcasts, with videos, with blogs, with um, links to the books that I'm writing. There's all kinds of information for you as a legal nurse consultant on the app. The most important thing is to register yourself, follow the instructions on the app screen when you download it so that you get access to unlock the content that is available to you once you register. I'll see you on your phone or on your YouTube channel, on your computer or on your cell phone next week with a new show. Thanks so much. Coming up next, you're gonna have an opportunity to hear from Dr. Brenda Towsley, who is a neurology clinical nurse specialist has her doctorate in nursing and serves attorneys as an expert witness, helping them as well behind the scenes. Brenda and I have been speaking about the types of strokes, the catastrophic damage that can occur if a stroke is not diagnosed and treated in time, if indeed it's even possible to treat it, to try to halt or reverse some of the damage that may occur. Brenda, tell our viewer, what were some of the key topics that we talked about in your podcast? So Pat, we talked about things like what kinds, what types of strokes are there? We talked about um, some of the treatments that we can offer for stroke and some of the um, effects if there's delay, whether in recognizing it or um, once it's recognized, getting the treatments that they need and stuff like that. Um, we talked a lot about who needs to recognize um, that somebody might be having a stroke symptoms and then what do they do and what those symptoms are. And then we talked a little bit about um, what some of those legal ramifications can be um, within the care of somebody who presents with stroke symptoms. And be sure to watch this podcast to find out what is the best possible scenario that a patient could undergo who's having a stroke in terms of where they are, when it happens, and the type of stroke, and what you can do as a legal nurse consultant to help an attorney who is questioning, could there have been a different outcome if people had acted differently? That's our key strength as legal nurse consultants. Brenda will also share with you a couple of resources that are available to measure the quality of care against to determine if the protocols were appropriately followed. So you won't want to miss Brenda's podcast on Legal Nurse Podcast 
coming up next. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.